0: And now for something completely different. It's a Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money. Markets. Life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors.
1: Hey, welcome to the show. It's, of course, Monday as we get... Uh, halfway through the month of June already, getting ready to wrap up. You know, the month already, it's just just amazing how fast we're kind of moving through the year so far. You know, after a, a year of shutdowns in 2020, and now we're back in 2021, everything's reopening back up. Years just flying by, it's all good. But I tell you what, it's been a good year for conspiracy theorists. You know, uh, first of all, people that were you know believed in UFOs, you know, were generally people in uh, you know trailer parks somewhere with tinfoil on their head, and they were all deemed to be conspiracy theory. Now, of course, the government releasing more and more information about well, UFOs maybe do exist. Um, of course, if you you know believed just last year that uh, the pandemic originated in a Chinese lab, right? You were deemed a conspiracy theorist, and now maybe that is not quite such as a conspiracy, right? So. Another conspiracy theory, of course, is, uh, you know, just recently we talked about on the show that South Dakota is now adding back um, firing squads to their execution list because they're having trouble because of all the pandemic shutdowns, supply chains are broken, et cetera. Right. So they're adding back in now the ability to have a firing squad to facilitate executions. Well, they're coming up with a new one because apparently people are a little upset about the whole firing squad thing. So they're now going to give prisoners a choice. And the choice is, of course, uh, being injected with Ebola or hanging out with the Clintons. Over the weekend, the reporter that broke the Clinton-Lynch story, now you'll remember this back when uh, there was the investigation of the Clinton Foundation. Ex-President Clinton met with Loretta Lynch, the Attorney General, and of course, that investigation went away. Well, that reporter that broke the story, Christopher Sine, uh died of apparent suicide over the weekend. More people have died from the Clintons than the Ebola virus at this point. So, Did he there you go.
0: To uh, commit suicide in the back of the head? It
1: <laughs> could, could be. Uh, anyway, seriously, uh, a lot of stuff to get into this morning. Um, Brian Monahan, uh, he's the uh, Bank of America CEO. He's actually on CNBC this morning, talking about how stimulus checks were necessary. For the economy, but were they really? Um, you know, again, we go through an economic shutdown, and part of the recession process is to reverse some of the excesses that occur during a decade-long buildup in the markets. Well. We stopped that from happening by doing all of these stimulus programs, et cetera. And yes, Brian Monahan is, of course, saying that, hey, stimulus checks have been great. Spendings up 20 percent. Yes, it's been great for the banks, right, because people that issue out loans and credit cards, et cetera, have been doing well over the course of the last year. And But the reality is, of course, now that we've added on another five trillion in debt, is, did we really do what was in the best interest? Of the economy, and especially for those in the bottom 80% of the economy, right? So, uh, some interesting statistics out over the weekend. Of course, I'm also uh, writing a report on this. So we'll have this for you here shortly. Um, household net worth now at an all time high. There's been a massive surge. Just this year, household net worth is up over $2 trillion. Well, where'd that come from? It okay, came mostly from real estate prices. <laughs> in a lot of cases, but also the rise in the stock market. And of course, given that the top 10% of income earners own 90% of the stock market and 90% of household net worth, they were the biggest beneficiaries. Those in the bottom 50% have seen no improvement whatsoever. Not surprising. You know, but this is, you know, when you start listening to the CEOs of these major banks, this is certainly sounds great from the surface. Like, oh, we had to have this stimulus. Well, we had to have the stimulus to keep your but in business. Uh, So we didn't have to bail you out again, of course, as we have to bail the banks out every time we have a recession. But again, the payback is now coming because inflationary pressures are rising. All that stimulus is coming to the system has now pushed up used car prices to an absolute extreme. In fact, consumer confidence just recently showed that buying plans for used cars has plummeted because of prices. Now, the same thing is going to happen in the housing market here shortly, because high, high housing prices are also going to lead to a crimp in demand. And of course, when you have a crimp in demand, you're going to get a big increase in supply of houses, people wanting to try to sell to capture high prices. And that's going to lead to a big decline in home prices as well. So all of this buildup that we've done through artificial stimulus sounds great on the surface. But it, it, first of all, it makes the wealthy wealthier. The top 10% continue to expand that wealth gap relative to the bottom 90% of the economy. But more importantly, it impacts poor people the most. They are the ones that are least able to adjust for higher prices. And yes, giving them more money to spend today was great, but what happens now, everything now costs more. For them, those that spend roughly 40 to 50% of their income strictly on housing and food, those individuals at the bottom 50 percent have the least ability to absorb higher prices and their wages not nearly increasing enough to offset those higher prices so it all sounds great in the surface that we do these things to try to help everybody out primarily we want to help the poor people we wind up hurting them the most good example of this of course now is this infrastructure bill that uh, clinton uh, the biden administration is talking about they may have a deal coming up 1.2 trillion dollars how are they going to pay for it They're going to start taxing people that drive electric vehicles, right? You're going to have to start paying your fair share of the highways, roads, and bridges that gas taxes currently consume, and also they're talking about providing more usage taxes on other items as well so that they can get the infrastructure bill paid for. Who impacts, who is impacted the most by higher taxes? Those in the bottom, 20 to 40% of the economy. They have the least amount of discretionary income to adjust for these things. And look, there's a big movement. By 2030, it is expected, GM is saying that they're gonna be out of the, ICE, uh, the internal combustion engine business, be solely electric vehicles. So everybody's pushing in that direction. Now, will that become a reality? Uh, that'll depend on the change of the administration. So just remember that all these thematic events that we do, ESG investing, which has made BlackRock a ton of money um, by convincing people they need to invest responsibly. Um, also, the fact that governments come and go and, the, and corporations adjust their views relative to the... People that are in power at the current time to retain favor with the people that pass laws and pass regulations. So, again, right now, big push for electric vehicles. Will it be that the case in 2030, 2040, 2050? Who knows? We'll find out when we get there. A lot of it's going to depend on attitude over the next 10 years. But don't think you're getting away with it. The problem here is, is that at the bottom end of this ladder, the people that support the economy the most are the ones that always pay the most in taxes. We've got to get to some other work here this morning very quickly. We went through this weekend's newsletter on the website realinvestmentadvice.com, going back and reviewing our buy signal that we had in the markets earlier this year. And again, as we continue to talk about this buy signal, it has gotten now back there very overbought. In the newsletter, we kind of go through the evolution of our conversation relative to this buy signal, where we added exposure and why last week. We actually started taking reducing that exposure here just a little bit now not going crazy here not selling everything and going to cash just trimming back a little bit of of our profits here taking a little bit of gains reducing some of our risk markets had had a very nice run here but have been struggling here with recent highs and we're getting further into the summer months and again uh, this point and where we've been talking about now this this June July period is where we expect to have the next kind of temporary sell-off correction in the markets so we want to be a little bit prepared for that there's not a lot of downside risk here a lot of exuberance still in the markets a lot of excitement of course so this week importantly is the FOMC and of course we'll see if they change their stance on tapering we have an article out this morning talking about the fact they've already started talking about thinking about talking about tapering it's on the website now realinvestmentadvice.com lots of stuff to get into this morning talk about seasonality we're going to talk about more about uh, the Fed got a lot of stuff coming up don't go away more on the real investment show I'm your host Lance Roberts be right back
0: Listening to the Real Investment Show. You could be one of the seven in ten people requiring long term care in your lifetime. Are you prepared for nursing home care costs averaging more than $7,600 a month? Our next virtual lunch and learn will cover the management of long term care expenses that could make or break your retirement. Join Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for the basics of long term care. Long term care. Register at realinvestmentadvice.com for our virtual lunch and learn on long term care. June Twenty fourth at new real The Real Investment Show yes! and
1: welcome back to just more morning, six seventeen. You know, I was joking about the Clintons, you know, in the last segment. Of course, you know, I've lost count of how many people have died around them. I I think I stopped at like 29 or 30, right? I just... You know, maybe your chances of surviving Ebola is actually a little bit better than hanging out with the Clinton. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> anyway, just joking. Just joking. It's Monday. We've got to get the uh, day started off right here. Um, okay, a couple of things here this morning. Uh, th- the G7 was uh, interesting over the weekend. Uh, Biden showed up to talk about, you know, that America is now back. I thought we were back last But anyway, where'd we go? I'm not sure where we we were, but hey, we're back. Um, It was was interesting to watch. G7 is mostly just a big photo op for, you know, the heads of state to all get together and pat each other on the back and kind of, you know, rah, rah and cheer, whatever they're going to do. But then little actually happens. Um, (laughs) Again, these are it's a lot of talking, not a lot of action, a lot of cases. This is one of the things we talked about last week with the whole global minimum income tax. It sounds great. Did G7 agree, you know, Yellen and uh, Jan? Yellen, with as uh, Treasury Secretary, and of course, uh, the G7, they're like, Oh, yeah, we're gonna do this uh, global minimum income tax. It sounds great. You got to get 127 countries around the world to agree to it, and then they all have to pass tax law changes through their respective Congresses, parliaments, etc. It ain't going to happen. <laughs> so, again, sounds great on the surface. Um, inflation is really kind of the, the talk uh, here lately. And, and, you know, there's two very big camps on this. I mean, right now there is the, you know, the, the Bitcoin crowd is, so to speak, which is all into this whole idea that inflation is back and we're going to have the inflation of the 70s. Right? We're going to have this high, this hyperinflation coming because of the reopening of the economy, etc. Then there's the other camp that says that no, and by the way, we're in this camp, which is no, um, because the g- growth of the economy up to this point has been all artificial because of stimulus, etc. That's going to fade, and those are going to lead to more deflationary pressures. Now, uh, over the weekend, David Rosenberg, um, w- who I've known for 20 years now, I think. Um, he was actually on CNBC over the weekend and made a very good point about this. And uh, I just, here, let me just play this clip. It's about you know, 30, 40 seconds here. Is that behind your thesis that investors should not be long consumer cyclical stocks right now? Does that play into your portfolio changes there?
0: Uh, absolutely. I, would, I, I really would. You know, this is my, my forecast is slower growth, uh, inflation peaking out and rolling over. And a bull flattening in the yield curve, which we're seeing already, which really means that um, that that growth should reclaim leadership over value uh, in the stock market, uh, which means consumer cyclicals is not where you want to be. You want to be more in that uh, defensive growth and in the areas of the market that are going to benefit from lower bond yields.
1: And and he's right. And, and this and look, there's just a few things that really tell you that this is the case Um and so, first of all, let's just clarify what he means here by cyclical, cyclicals versus growth. So, um, up to the 85% of the rally this year, markets up, you know, 12, 13% for the year, 85% of that rally has come from cyclical stocks. So, that's energy, financials, industrials, materials. Those are the, those are the companies that are impacted the most by cyclical changes to the economy. What he's saying is, is that that rotation is going to occur now back to companies that can generate growth, really, in any type of environment, which is going to be primarily technology. And the reason that he's saying this is because the inflationary pressures that were we created in the economy because of all these stimulus. Again, we you know we put twenty percent of the economy into stim, you know direct inputs of providing checks to households. Now, look, this is now a permanent thing, by the way. Every time in the future that we have an economic downturn, just expect we're going to start throwing out checks to people. This is the this is a, a new policy tool that will now become a permanent tool in the toolbox. So once interest rates are at zero and you're doing $120 billion in QE a month, what are you going to do then, right? Well, now we know. We just crank up another couple of trillion dollars and we send checks to households, they run out and spend the money. The problem, though, this is going to create is these more repetitive cyclical booms and busts. Because you're going to create this cyclical boom by providing people money to spend, but once they spend the money, then what? Companies now know that the money spent and with now prices high, we're starting to see a collapse in those. Lumber prices, a good example of this. Lumber prices have been collapsing over the course of the last couple of months. There was this big rush to buy you know, commodity stocks because of this fear of inflationary pressures, and prices got way out of hand. And now you're having other problems, right? Supply is coming up, and when supply rises, well, you're going to have a reduction in price. And you're going to see this all across the board, right? And, and part of this is also George Soros's theory of reflexivity. What is that? <laughs> the theory of reflexivity is simply this. It means that you believe something is true, so you go out and take an action. And then because you took a specific action on what you believe to be true, you caused what you believe to be true to happen. Let me give you a good example of this. When the pandemic occurred and we shut down the economy, everybody believed that you weren't going to be able to buy, you know, water, food or hand sanitizer. So everybody runs out and buys everything they can, you know, strips the stores clean and now you can't buy anything. Right. Your action caused the result that you were trying to avoid to begin with. This is also the stability of instability paradox which is that whenever you have stability that any concern you know the, the the whole premise of the Federal Reserve is based upon stability in other words investors don't do something in a panic and they don't push that big red button that causes financial instability but the financial stability itself leads to instability at some point because eventually somebody's going to push the big red button So we give everybody stimulus checks and everybody runs out and spends the money, which creates a shortage of goods and services, creates supply chain bottlenecks because we can't produce stuff fast enough to meet the surge in demand caused by 20 percent of the economy being injected in 12 months. And everybody goes, oh, my gosh, we've got supply chain disruption. Prices are going up. What are we going to do? Oh, my. And now with those checks running out and prices high, people are going, well, I can't afford to buy anything. So now supply increases, prices drop, and you're back in, the, in, in, in a slower growth environment again, which will happen as we get to later this year. Remember, a lot of the CPI that we're looking at right now is just year-over-year base effects. This month and next month are going to be the two highest readings on CPI. Oh, actually, May and June will be the two highest readings on CPI. Once we get to July, that's going to start to roll off because of the year-over-year base effects. July of last year, inflation was already recovering. The risk going forward... Is everybody's now piled into the cyclical trade and have run those prices up to extreme levels, which means they're gonna caught, you know, people that are late to that trade are gonna be caught flat footed. And of course, just over the last week, and we talked about this when we got the buy signal, um, you know, about four weeks ago, we had talked about adding the fact that we had added the NASDAQ. Instead of the S&P 500 to our portfolios for a trade an index trading position. Why we did that was because we said that we think that this index will outperform the S&P, and it did. So growth has already been making a very quiet comeback. If you haven't been paying attention, Amazon's had a couple of great days last week, right? We're starting to see some rotation back into those technical stocks, into those growth-oriented stocks. So if take a look underneath the surface. Arc was up. Uh, Arc, which is the, Kathy Wood, um, investing of, of technology disruptors, right? That was up six percent last week. Those stocks having a bit of a comeback. Now look, they're they're grossly oversold here. But having a comeback. So again, you know, this you know, the idea that we're gonna have this surging inflation of the seventies, we just don't have the economic backdrop for that. In the 70s, we were 80 percent manufacturing, 20 percent service, and inflation was a function of rising GDP, rising wages, rising savings, strong economic output. Today, we don't have any of that. Services have a very low economic multiplier. The more we drive into services, the worse we make our economy long term. But that's just a function of where we are. You know, we we talk about (laughs) you need to raise wages, got to raise wages, $15 hour minimum wage. We went through this before, but company after company after company is coming out talking about, hey, yeah, you know, wages have gone up and we've got to do something else to offset that cost. More automation, more artificial intelligence being brought in companies spending more and more on technology to reduce one thing. The only thing they're trying to reduce is the cost of labor because it's it's expensive. Inflation compresses profit margins, higher wages, higher costs. Those all have to be absorbed by companies. And we talked about last week that the spread between PPI and CPI is one of the largest on record, which means that companies can't pass on those costs to companies. But this is where we are and again you know again you can pick your camp that you want to be in it doesn't matter but you've got to understand though that if you pick the camp of super high inflation that you're picking something and your argument is based on a one-time series of of influences that don't exist in the normal economy Come back after the break. We talk a little. I want to finish this conversation up. Uh, talk about what some companies are actually doing, and then also talk a little about seasonality. Don't go away. Coming right back on the Real Investment Show.
0: Wow, wow, wow. That's a wow, wow, wow. Wow. Tommy used to work on the docks. Union's been on strike. He's down on his luck. He's tough. So tough. I don't want to Investment Show. You could be one of the seven in 10 people requiring long-term care in your lifetime. Are you prepared for nursing home care costs averaging more than $7,600 a month? Our next virtual lunch and learn will cover the management of long-term care expenses that could make or break your retirement. Join Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for the basics of long-term care. Long-term care. Register at realinvestmentadvice.com for our virtual lunch and learn on long-term care. June 24th at noon. Real investmentadvice.com. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. And
1: welcome back to the show this morning. So I just uh, want to wrap up a conversation on inflation Because, you know, this is, you know, one of the problems is that, you know, we've created this artificial inflation by injecting, you know, all this capital into markets. And now companies are having to respond to it. Um, Campbell Soup Company. You have to listen to what they say. Now, this is in their conference calls, right, for their earnings reports. And listen carefully to what they say. The company revealed that uh, they are impacted by a rising inflationary environment, sustained inflationary pressures, um, will exist through the remainder of this year. They're going to be raising food prices this summer to offset rising costs. Now, here was the key line. We're going to be very thoughtful about it. The last thing we want to do is shut down the growth we've worked so hard to have. In other words, they realize that if they raise costs too much that people won't buy their products. It's not, real, uh, it's not rocket science here. J.M. Smucker Company. Broad-based inflation impacting many of the commodities, packaging materials, and transportation channels in our business. How are they dealing with it? We are mitigating the impacts through a combination of higher pricing. That means your jam's going up. Re- uh, reduced trade and net revenue optimization strategies and cost management. That's wage suppression. You have to, you have to like the way they classify that. Net revenue optimization strategies.
0: Ooh. <laughs>
1: yeah, layoffs. <laughs> Whirlpool. We took price increases in every region of the world to range from 5 to 12%. Those are driven by commodity cost increases, something that we have done historically. The company said in the first quarter conference called to offset the impact of the global supply constraints and rising input costs. How do you do that? Net revenue optimization strategies. <laughs> Honeywell, there's no doubt about it. We knew it. We see it. Right. Higher pricing on everything is becoming a problem, but we're going to do what we can to stay ahead of it. Clorox, in order to manage rising costs, they are affecting uh, announcing pricing action effective in July. As we mentioned, well, uh, we'll manage inflationary pressures holistically using all the tools in our toolbox. Classified as net revenue optimization strategies. Procter & Gamble. The company said it'll begin the process of implementing price increases and its baby care, feminine care, and adult incontinence products category in the United States to offset a portion of the impact of rising commodity costs because when you realize how much you're paying, you're going to pee on yourself. Um, (laughs) Coca-Cola, we are well hedged into 21, but pressures are building up for 22, so there will have to be some price increases. We want to manage those intelligently. Thinking through the way we use package sizes and really optimize the price point for consumers. Now, that's called net revenue optimization strategies. What that means is is that you get get less for more. That's called shrinkflation. Listen to what they said again. They're going to do this through the way we use package sizes. right? So when you go to buy potato chips, there's less in the bag. You go to buy Oreos, there's less in the bag. The package is the same size. You're getting less in the package. You know what one of the greatest scams by Mondelez was in recent years?
0: What, Lance?
1: And actually Hershey's as well. Hershey's and Mondelez pulled off two of the greatest scams in history to reduce costs. And they did it through shrinkflation, and you didn't even know it. You wind up actually paying more for it. Mondelez came out with Oreo Thins. This way, you can eat twice as many Oreos for the same amount of calories and pay more for them. <laughs> Hershey's came out with this new great invention. Hershey Kisses with air bubbles. They're lighter than air. You're getting less chocolate for what you're paying for. So you can eat twice as many and still stay on your diet. But there you go. Strengthflation comes in all different shapes, forms, and sizes. It's all called, also called... Net revenue optimization strategies. <laughs> look, that's just, look, this is, the, this is the cycle that we're in. So, you know, be aware. Your costs are going up. Wages won't. And despite the fact that we continue to demand higher wages, higher wages are the biggest cost for any business. And every business is ultimately focused on one thing. Net revenue optimization strategies, that's how companies remain in business and remain profitable. So I have a choice. I can either raise prices, I can reduce costs, or I can do a combination of the both. But ultimately, at the end of the day, if I don't protect my profit margins, my stock price won't remain elevated. And this is the one thing that we're watching here very carefully over the course of the next uh, quarter of earnings reports is watch those net margins. We're going to start to see net margins shrink, and that's going to make earnings much more difficult. And especially with earnings estimates as as elevated and as extended as they are currently, you're going to start to see those earnings estimates start to ratchet back in. This is going to keep valuations elevated, and it's going to make it more challenging for stock prices to go higher in the months ahead. So assuming no correction, right? If you have a correction, different story. Um, so I had an email over the weekend asking about how often do we use seasonality to inform our outlook? And uh, they sent me this nice chart on a 25-year performance chart suggesting that June is a very common time for a sell-off in the markets. And that's a correct statement, right? We talk often about, uh, you know, Uh, summer weakness, and the fact if you just invest during the seasonally strong period of the year, which is essentially November through May, the bulk of your gains, the massive bulk of your gains over the last 120 years came from those six months. Um, Virtually, you made very little gains investing in the summers. Now, that doesn't mean every summer is negative. doesn't mean every summer is a big correction. We had a couple of nice corrections last summer, August, September last year, a couple of 5% corrections right in a row. So it can certainly be the case. Um, But there are summers that there's been, you know, very positive summers. And as soon as you have a positive summer, people come out and go, well, see, if you'd sell and made and gone away, you would have missed the summer rally. Yeah, maybe. That's one of a few. More often than not, summers don't perform that well, right? There's a whole variety of reasons for it. People are on vacation. Traders are gone. It's hot, (laughs) you know. But there's a lot of reasons why summers don't, don't perform well. Does that mean you should be all in cash? No, it doesn't. Um, again, you should never be 100% cash. It's too hard to get – once you get out, it's too hard to get back in. You miss the turns. It's a, a whole variety of bad habits show up from that. But as we've been talking about going into summer – Yes, summers are typically weak, but also we're going into summer with markets back to very overbought conditions, very extended. We were already up 13% for the year. That's historically a very big move. That's a 26% annualized rate of return for the year, so it's a very large return. So we've also gone a very long period of time without a 5% correction, haven't had one since last summer. It's very long for the markets not to have a 5% correction. So there's certainly a lot of conditions present that suggest that this summer we're going to have a correction. Now, is it going to be in June? Maybe. Could it be July? Sure. Could be August? Absolutely. Right. But probably somewhere over the course of the next couple of months, we're going to see a correction of the markets. Now, corrections can take a couple of different forms. One, markets can just not go anywhere. We really haven't gone. Yes. You know, well, we talked on Friday. Everybody's like, oh, markets are all new high. Yeah. Barely. Barely at all uh, all-time high. Basically, we haven't gone anywhere in about a month and a half. Just kind of been flopping around, gasping for air, fish out of water type thing, right? Gary Shandling's definition of sex. Fish out of water. If you don't know it, go look it up on the web. Um, but that's just kind of where we are at this point, right? So... Again, seasonality is is important, right? I mean, there's some his, historical precedence to understanding there's a risk in summers. But, you know, saying, hey, I'm actually going to go to cash in May and come back in October, you can do that, right? Odds are you'll impair your performance somewhat because what will happen is, is that you'll get out of the market in May or early June, whatever, and then the market's going to take off running running away from you. And so you're going to jump back in right at the peak of whatever little run that is, and you wind up losing money, and then you're going to get out again. And it's just, that's the psychological impact of trying to trade markets, right? You're better off just, if you're worried about the summer months, certainly, uh, uh, you know, seasonality and history suggests that summer months tend to be weaker, so reduce your risk a little bit. So what if you underperform? You know, comparison is one of the worst things that we do as individuals, chasing some random benchmark index that has absolutely nothing to do with your financial goals, your time horizon. Indexes have no cash. They have no taxes. They have no expenses. They don't have a time frame. Indexes have nothing to do with your money. So comparing yourself to some benchmark index is going to lead you to doing three things that are terrible for your performance long term. One, you're going to chase performance. You're going to take on way more risk than your financial profile suggests you should. You know, when things happen in your portfolio, like a bankruptcy or a big collapse, et cetera, you don't get the same effect that an index does. So you're always going to underperform the index. But yet, you know, the market's going to tell you, "Hey, if you're not uh, benching, you know, if you're not beating the benchmark, you need a new advisor. So great. So now you go change advisor. So now you jump from one frying pan into another frying pan. You wind up selling all your assets at one level to buy whatever was working last year. That typically leads to underperformance ahead because what worked last year typically doesn't work this year or next year. Generally, whatever worked over the last couple of years only has about a two to three year lifespan and then something else is working. So you wind up leading to more into performance and then you make the biggest emotional mistake at all of Chasing Index, which is ultimately making rash emotional decisions, trying to play catch up, trying to get ahead. And you only wind up making yourself in a worse position. So then you just quit investing altogether because you just can't do it right. So stop benchmarking. has nothing to do with you. Do what's right for your money and your portfolio, and you're going to do a whole lot better long-term. Just set reasonable goals that your money can maintain on an annual basis. and That primary goal? Inflation. Be right back after the break. little little
0: nice to start again. It's a nice day for us. White weather Winter? Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. You could be one of the seven in ten people requiring long-term care in your lifetime. Are you prepared for nursing home care costs averaging more than $7,600 a month? Our next virtual Lunch & Learn will cover the management of long-term care expenses that could make or break your retirement. Join Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for the basics of long-term care. Long-term care. Register at at realinvestmentadvice.com for our virtual lunch and learn on long-term care. June 24th at noon, realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show.
1: So getting ready to wrap up the show this morning, of course. Be sure by the website. We went through uh, this weekend's newsletter kind of talking about, you know, kind of evolution of our buy signal, how we got here and why we started just taking some, you know, raising a little bit of cash and taking some profits last week and just kind of rebalancing portfolios here a little bit. Again, you know, we're just kind of discussing this whole idea of seasonality and And, you know, there is an importance to understanding seasonality. There's long-term cycles as well, uh, 70-year cycles. Um, You know, the problem is, is that whenever you start talking about long-term anything, right, things don't always work out exactly the way these cycles suggest. Now, do they eventually? Yeah, pretty much. For instance, you go back in history, there have been, five bull markets and there have been four bear markets and guess what they alternate you have a bear market so you have a bull market then you've got a bear market bull market bear market bull market bear market right and right now we're in a bull market which means that what well we've got a bear market coming a real one march 2020 was not a bear market there's a correction so we've got a real bear market coming one that's going to last you know 16 18 months it's going to wipe out 50 60 percent of portfolios whole variety of bad stuff coming. When's that going to happen? Who knows? So if you go to cash today, trying to avoid something that may not happen for a year or two or three, and this is what has happened with a lot of people after the crash of, of 2008, right? We have people coming into our office all the time saying, I've been in cash since 2009. I'm, I want to get back in now. Really? Now? <laughs> okay. So you can't worry about these things. You just have to manage them and, and trying to time them. I got an email over the weekend from a guy. It's like, you know, you know, I'm ready to retire and I'm just going to sit on the sidelines till we get a correction. and I'm going to buy in. OK. Could be a couple more years. Could be three years. Could be four years. Could be five years. I don't know when the correction is coming. Nobody does. Right. We know we'll get one. But just don't know when. In the meantime, you pass up a lot of opportunity costs by worrying about the next crisis or correction or crash, right? You just have to be prepared to manage for it and navigate that risk when it does occur. And you'll have plenty of evidence, right? In January and February, you can go to our website and and check this out. In January, February of 2020, we were warning about a correction. And we we wrote a couple articles called This is Nuts, Why We're Reducing Risk. And March, I think it's March the tenth, right at the peak of the market. We wrote an article talking about on the cusp of a bear market. Everybody's like, "Not gonna have a bear market, stupid." Well, four weeks later, it wasn't so stupid, right? Well, you know this is this is the risk of markets, but you have to navigate these things. But this goes back to our conversation we were having in the last segment about benchmarking to some index, right? This is the problem with buy and hold strategies. Buy and hold strategies are fine. I got nothing against a buy and hold strategy. Put your money into an index fund and just ride the market. The problem is, though, is that at some point you're going to spend a whole lot of time just getting back to where you were previously. And that's not really the same thing as making money. And the problem with the buy and hold strategy is that if I don't sell at the top, I can't buy stuff cheap at the bottom because I never raised any cash. I'm just writing it up and down. So, you know, not worrying about what an index does from one day to the next. If you can, if you can separate that out and, and turn the television off. You know, I don't have, the only time I have CNBC on is when I'm in the studio because it's a distraction. All the nonsense that they talk about on, t- on financial media all day is a distraction. It's going to make you do all the wrong things emotionally. You're going to run out by Bitcoin because Elon Musk today said, hey, he may start taking Bitcoin again. And then you're going to turn around and sell it when he turns <laughs> around the next day and says, oh, I've changed my mind. You know, you have all these companies that pay for stuff in the financial media to promote whatever products, goods, or services they're selling. And so while you may chase them temporarily and do well, most of the time you're going to wind up buying them way too high. ARK Investments was a good example of that. Last year, she was the darling of Wall Street. This year, she's the villain. Right? 30% decline will do that to you. So, again, worrying about what the market does or what one stock does or whatever is going to lead you to make emotionally very bad decisions long term. It may not hurt you today, may not hurt you tomorrow, may not hurt you next week, may not hurt you next month. But at some point, you're going to experience a very sharp and devastating loss of capital, especially chasing stocks like AMC, GameStop, those type of things you're going to experience a very devastating loss of capital that is very, very difficult to repair. And it's just not worth it. What is worth it? Picking a rate of return that is reasonable and achievable over the long term. What's reasonable well, expecting 6 to 8% a year is not reasonable. Not in an economy that's growing at 2%. From 2000 to 2013, the rate of return on stocks was zero. We're now set up for another decade of near zero rates of return with virtually however you want to dice it valuation-wise. So trying to attain 6 to 8% rates of return require you to take on an exceptional amount of risk to generate that rate of return in an environment that's not geared to deliver that rate of return, which means that at some point you're going to pay a heavy price. What's achievable? A rate of return That exceeds the rate of inflation. Why do I care about the rate of inflation? Because your job as an investor is not to try to build wealth. Now, now listen to me carefully here. Your job is what you do every day. That's what you go to do at work, right? You go to work, you work your eight hours a day, your 10 hours a day. If you're like me, it's 14 to 16 hours a day. But you do your job and you get paid for it. That's where you grow your wealth and you do that by saving money. So what's the job of investing? To make sure that your savings adjust for the rate of inflation to maintain purchasing power parity in the future. In other words, your $100,000 in the bank today will buy you $100,000 worth of goods and services 30 years from now when you get ready to retire. So your real benchmark rate is really nothing more than inflation and at 2% inflation you don't have a you don't have a lot of hard work to do. You don't got to take a lot of risk to do that. Am I saying you should benchmark for 2%? No. I'm saying is that's a reasonable and achievable rate of return, and that should be your base goal. Now, if you can adjust your returns to create some incremental increases, great. Nothing wrong with that. But it has to be a reasonable assumption based on economic growth, inflation, and dividends. So if the economy is growing at 2% and inflation is growing at 3%, that's a negative 1% growth in the econ- in, in the markets over the next 10 years, plus, in, plus dividends at 2 for example. So you're looking at 1% to 2% rates of return. Reasonable and achievable. Those are your benchmarks. Outside of that, what happens on television or what happens on some single stock or whatever else doesn't matter the goal is not to lose money right your primary goal is capital preservation because if i'm spending all my time just trying to recover my lost capital i'm not making money and really investors are way too cavalier about investing you know they treat the markets like a casino look Everybody likes to go to Vegas, right? I go to Vegas and I, I bet on you know craps or Blackjack, whatever it is, and if I lose money, it's like, oh well, you know I lost a couple hundred bucks, whatever it is. That's one thing. When you lose the title to your house, that's another thing entirely, <laughs> right? But we treat the, the financial markets. Like Vegas, is like we lose a bunch of money. It's like, oh, well, it was just it was just money. You worked hard for that money. Man, you go to work every day, and you pay taxes on that money to invest it. And then you blow it on some stupid investment, and you go, well, mm, oh, well, it was just money. I can go make some more. You can. And this is why 80% of Americans can't retire, because they don't have any money in the bank. reasonable and achievable goals that's all that matters it doesn't matter what your neighbor's doing it doesn't matter you know i get i get calls from people like well my next door neighbor is buying this and he's just making a boatload of money you know how many times i have heard this story over the years in 1999 man everybody was was like oh my neighbor's doing this my neighbor's doing that my best friend bought a porsche trading yahoo in 1999 right By the end of 2000, the Porsche was all he had left. (laughs) That got sold. 2008, everybody's buying houses. End of 2008, not so much. Don't worry about what your neighbor's doing. Odds are seriously high he's going to lose a lot of money sooner rather than later. You don't want to be in that camp. You want to be the guy that, after the fact, your neighbor comes to you and says, Man... Wish I would have listened to you. Wraps up the show for the day. Get by the website. Our latest article is out talking about the Fed starting its taper talk. We're going to hear more from them this week with the FOMC meeting. And, of course, that's going to really start to set up and drive markets here over the next couple of months. What they say and their outlook could have a lot of an impact on the markets. Markets are hanging out, kind of waiting for that, too. So we'll see what happens. Get by the website. That article up on the website. Along with our latest newsletter, the Evolution of our buy signals and what we're doing now. It's on the website now, realinvestmentadvice.com. That's realinvestmentadvice.com. Just click on the newsletter link or our latest blog post. It's all there for you. Have a great day. See you back here tomorrow.
0: It's a rich